The Victorious Life, Part 3, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The overstrained mystical doctrine of the Christ within us, on which Mr. Trumbull's quietism is founded, will not have escaped the reader. The crassness of the language in which he can express this doctrine may be noted, perhaps, as well as elsewhere in the tract called The Life That Wins. He begins its exposition, as all his fellows begin it, by declaring that such New Testament expressions as Christ in you and you in Christ, Christ our life and abiding in Christ, are literal, actual, blessed fact, and not figures of speech. But what these expressions literally say does not suffice him. He presses on to such an unmeasured declaration as this. At last I realized that Jesus Christ was actually and literally within me, and even more than that, that he had constituted himself my very being, my body, mind, soul, and spirit, my body was his, my mind his, my spirit his, and that not merely his, but literally a part of him. Jesus had constituted himself my life, not as a figure of speech, remember, but as a literal actual fact, as literal as the fact that a certain tree has been made into this desk on which my hand rests. If this amazing language is anything more than somewhat loose rhetoric, it asserts that our individuality has been abolished and Christ has taken its place. We are told that he has constituted himself our very being, and that we may not fail to give this assertion full validity. Our being is analysed into its parts, and we are told that Christ has constituted himself our body, mind, soul, and spirit. All these things become not only his, but literally a part of him. He has become them as literally as the tree which has been sawn into boards of which a desk is made, has been made into that desk. Clearly, we no longer exist, we have passed away, and Christ has been substituted for us. We and he are not one and another. There is but one left, and that one is Christ. Accordingly, Mr. Trumbull says, I need never ask him to help me again as though he was one and I another, but rather simply ask him to do his works, his will, in me and with me and through me. The question, no doubt, obtrudes itself how we can ask him anything when there is no longer one and another in the case. There is, in fact, only one agent left, whether to ask or to be asked, and that is Christ. Surely he who has constituted himself my very being, my body, mind, soul, and spirit, does not now turn around and ask himself to do his work, his will in me, and with me, and through me. Nor does he need to do these things, for surely they are things he cannot well help doing. And so the inference is sharply drawn, when our life is not only Christ's, but Christ our life will be a winning life, for he cannot fail. Our only wonder is that Mr. Trumbull felt it necessary to say this, of course, if we have passed away, and Christ has taken our place, and he is the only agent in what we absurdly call our acts, all, all we say, that is done by us is really done by him, and must represent him fully and not us at all. That lies in the very nature of the case. It must not be supposed that Mr. Trumbull is alone in proclaiming this somewhat unintelligible mysticism. It is common to the whole school which he represents. When Henry A. Boardman, a half-century ago, was commenting on it, as taught by Hannah Whittle Smith and her coterie, he remained on the one-sidedness of the representation. It is purely arbitrary, he intimates, to lay such stress on Christ becoming to us righteousness and sanctification in such a sense as that his righteousness and holiness are infused into us, 
and to say nothing of his becoming to us wisdom, say, which is coupled with the others in the same verse, 1 Corinthians one thirty, in such a manner that we become also perfectly wise with his wisdom. You have precisely the same authority, he says, for claiming to be perfect in wisdom, in accepting Christ, that you have for claiming to be perfect in sanctification. It will have been seen that Mr. Trumbull does not lay himself open to this criticism. He declares boldly that Christ has constituted himself not only our soul and spirit, but also our mind, and even our body, and the inevitable consequence must be drawn that we must therefore be perfect in every one of these spheres of life. If Mr. Trumbull does not follow out all these inferences for us, Dr. A. B. Simpson does, and that in writings which are recommended by Mr. Trumbull as among the best and clearest on the truth of the life that is in Christ, which is presented at Princeton Conference. Take the tract, for example, called Himself, which is an address delivered at Bethshen, London. The fundamental idea of this tract is that we may have not only gifts from Christ, but Himself, and to have Christ Himself is better than to have all His help, all His blessings, all His gifts. When that has been said, however, the reins are thrown on the neck of fancy, and it is permitted to run away with the idea. To have Christ is to have him in such a sense, we are told, that whatever Christ is becomes quite literally ours. Not only does Christ's righteousness become our righteousness, and Christ's holiness our holiness, and Christ's wisdom our wisdom, and Christ's strength our strength, but Christ's spirit becomes our spirit, Christ's mind our mind, Christ's body our body. As Dr. Simpson was speaking on this occasion at Bethshen, he very naturally laid his stress on Christ's body becoming our body, in such a sort that having Christ we have bodily wholeness, not merely freedom from disease, but perfect bodily wholeness, for is not Christ's body whole? But he sweeps his hand over all the strings. He has taken Christ for his mind, for his memory, for his will also, and we learn that he therefore no longer makes mistakes, no longer forgets things, and no longer is irresolute or stubborn at the wrong places. Christ in him has become the real agent in all his mental and moral activities. Even his faith is not his own but Christ's. This is especially puzzling because he tells us elsewhere that we must take Christ for all these things or else we do not get them, and that this taking is our own act, Christ becoming our life only subsequently and consequently. Here he tells us, however, that not even faith must come between us and Jesus. Once he thought he should have to work up the faith, and so he laboured to get the faith, but that did not work. And then God seemed to speak to me so sweetly, saying, Never mind, my child, you have nothing, but I am perfect power, I am perfect love, I am your faith, I am your life, I am the preparation for the blessing, and then I am the blessing too. I am all within and all without and all forever. And then he exclaims, it is just having the faith of God, Mark 11.22, margin, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live not by faith in the Son of God, but by the faith of the Son of God, Galatians 2.20. That is it. It is not your faith. You have no faith in you any more than you have life or anything else in you. You have to take his faith as well as his life and healing, and have simply to say, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It is simply Christ, Christ alone. Christ thus does our very believing for us, and we live not by faith in him, but by his faith in us. We have indeed to take his faith, just as we have to take his life, and we do not quite understand what this taking is, if it is not already faith. As now, however, we take his faith and it becomes our faith, 
So we take his body and it becomes our body. And as his body is now our body, we are in a bodily sense, of course, whole. Dr. Simpson actually teaches this. You can receive Christ for your body's welfare as well as for your souls. And when you do this, his body becomes your body. His spirit is all that your spirit needs, and he just gives us himself. His body possesses all that your body needs. He has a heart beating with the strength that your heart needs. He has organs and functions redundant with life, not for himself, but for humanity. He does not need strength for himself, the energy which enabled him to rise and ascend from the tomb, above all the forces of nature, was not for himself. That marvellous body belongs to your body. You are a member of his body. Your heart has a right to draw from his heart all that it needs. Your physical life has a right to draw from his physical life its support and strength, and so it is not you, but it is just the precious life of the Son of God. Will you take him thus today, he therefore pleads, and he promises, and then you will not be merely healed, but you will have a new life for all you need, and a flood of life that will sweep disease away, and then remain a fountain of life for all your future need. Dr. Simpson knows, for he has tried it. He gives an affecting account of how, learning the little secret of Christ in you, he took him for his bodily health too, and got not merely relief from suffering, not merely simple healing, but Christ so gave himself that he lost the painful consciousness of physical organs. This is what letting go and letting Christ means when it is taken literally. There is indeed one dogma which takes precedence in Mr. Trumbull's mind to the dogma of the Christ within us. This is the dogma of the inalienable ability of the human will to do at any time and under any circumstances precisely what in its unmotived caprice it chances to turn to. To this dogma, accordingly, he cheerfully sacrifices fervently asserted dogma of the Christ within us while in the very act of elaborating it. With a bathos of inconsequence, which would be incredible did it not stare us full in the face, he actually inserts into the assertion that Christ has constituted himself my very being, my body, mind, soul, and spirit, at the place indicated by the points, this bewildering parenthesis, save only my power to resist him. How in the name of all that is rational can I retain a power to resist him when I retain no body or mind or soul or spirit of my own, when I no longer exist as a distinguishable entity, but Christ has become me as literally as the tree which furnishes the wood of which a desk has been made has become that desk? Where is the seat of this power to resist him? And how can it act, successfully act, against the only agent that acts at all? Following out this inconsequent dogma of a power to resist Christ, remaining in the being which Christ has constituted himself, however, Mr. Trumbull proceeds to beg us not to think that he is suggesting any mistaken unbalanced theory that when a man receives Christ as the fullness of his life, he cannot sin again. How can we help thinking just that, when we have been told that Christ has constituted himself our very being, our body, mind, soul, and spirit, and seizing the reins has become the sole agent in all our activities? He who cannot fail. Can Christ, who has thus become our very life, living thus in us, sin through us? And if he cannot sin through us, how can we sin, when it is no longer we who live, but he that lives in us? To say that the life that is in Christ still leaves us our free will, and with that free will we can resist Christ, is to deny simpliciter that Christ in us has constituted himself my very being, my body, mind, soul, and spirit. That my body, mind, will, will is expressly mentioned, and spirit have become not merely his, but part of him. 
And when it is once said that the life that is Christ still leaves us our free will, and that with that free will we can resist Christ, it is already denied simpliciter what is at once added, that as I trust Christ in surrender, there need be no fighting against sin, but complete freedom from the power and even the desire of sin. How can he who is free from even the desire of sin possibly resist Christ? Is not resisting Christ sin? And if resisting Christ is sin, how can he who may at one time resist Christ be said to be free from all necessity of fighting against sin? Must he not fight against the impulse, the temptation to resist Christ? Even though in some mysterious sense, though retaining a liability to resist Christ, he has no desire of sin. And how can we talk of retaining the power to resist Christ if we have learned that this freedom from the power and even the desire of sin, this more than conquering, is sustained in unbroken continuance as I simply recognize that Christ is my cleansing, reigning life? Obviously, Mr. Trumbull cannot maintain both these dogmas, the dogma of the substitution of Christ for us as the agent in all our activities, and the dogma of the possession by us of an ineradicable power to resist Christ. They destroy one another, and one must give way before the other. It is not difficult to determine which is the more deeply rooted in Mr. Trumbull's thinking. It is clear that his dogma of free will is the foundation stone of all his thought, and that before it all else must give way. This is the account to give, indeed, of its emergence in this connection. He cannot refrain from throwing in a caveat in its favour, even when engaged in elaborating its contradictory, a dogma of the sole agency of Christ in all the activities of the surrendered Christian. In the light of Scripture, however, the one dogma, equally with the other, is wholly untenable. The Scriptures have a doctrine of free will, and they have a doctrine of Christ within us, but the doctrine of Scripture on neither of these matters has anything in common with the exaggerated dogma on it which Mr. Trumbull announces. It happens that the scriptural doctrine on both matters may be suggested by a single scriptural phrase, which may stand for us as their symbol, make the tree good, that its fruit may be good also. Christ dwells within us not for the purpose of sinking our being into his being, nor of substituting himself for us as the agent in our activities, much less of seizing our wills and operating them for us in contradiction to our own imminent mind, but to operate directly upon us to make us good, that our works freely done by us may, under his continual leading, be good also. Our wills being the expression of our hearts, continually more and more dying to sin and more and more living to holiness, under the renewing action of the Christ dwelling within us by the Spirit, can never from the beginning of his gracious renewal of them resist Christ fatally and will progressively resist him less and less, until, our hearts having been made through and through good, our wills will do only righteousness. Mr. Trumbull's attempt to perform the impossible feat of uniting in one system an express autosoterism and an equally express quietism naturally brings him into endless self-contradictions. He writes in The Sunday School Times as follows, Christ is living the victorious life today, and Christ is your life, therefore stop trying. Let him do it all. Your effort or trying had nothing to do with the salvation which you have in Christ. In exactly the same way, your effort and trying can have nothing to do with the complete victory which Christ alone has achieved for you and can steadily achieve in you. That is express quietism, and we must not permit that fact to be obscured to us by our instinctive sympathy with the element of truth in quietism here thrown into observation, the purity of its supernaturalism in the mode of salvation. Now Mr. Trumbull, having proclaimed this quietistic gospel, 
he is very naturally taken to task for it from the autosoteric point of view. How does he meet the assault? Why, by turning right around and asserting with equal emphasis the autosoteric gospel. It is true, he writes, that God can save no man unless that man does his part towards salvation. But what is man's part? It is to receive the salvation that God offers him in Christ. God forces salvation on no one, and God has revealed to us in his word that many reject salvation. Our wills are free to act. Their action is the accepting or the rejecting of the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is very bad. It is not only that it stands in direct contradiction with what was formerly said. It does that. There we were to let Christ do it all. Here we are to do a part ourselves. The formula there was Christ only. The formula here is Christ plus my receiving. An unhappy attempt is indeed made to interpret the act of receiving as no act. But this act of the will, by which we voluntarily and deliberately decide to take what God offers us, is not what was meant in that editorial on victory by effort. And yet this voluntary and deliberate act of the will is man's part towards salvation, and such a part that there is no salvation except by its procurement. And surely it cannot be pretended that a voluntary and deliberate decision, a decision on which our salvation absolutely depends, to take what God offers, requires no effort, and is accomplished without trying, especially by a dead man, a man into whose heart Christ, who is our life, has not come, into whose heart Christ, who is our only life, cannot come unless and until the man does this, his part, towards salvation, and does it, of course, since Christ, his only life, has not and cannot come to him until he does this, his part, apart from him and without his help. This would be as much as to say that Christ's call to Lazarus must needs have been ineffective until dead Lazarus, by a voluntary and deliberate act of his will, decided to take what God offered him in that call. What is most important to observe about Mr. Trumbull's new statement, therefore, is not that it is directly contradictory to his former one, which it essays to explain, but that very happily it is not at all true. It is not true that God can save no man unless that man does his part towards salvation. Man has no part to do towards salvation, and if he had, he could not do it. His very characteristic as a sinner is that he is helpless, that he is lost. He is very active indeed in the process of his salvation, for this activity is of the substance of his salvation. He works out his own salvation, but only as God works in him the willing and the doing according to his own good pleasure. It is not true that God forces salvation on no man. It would be truer to say that no man is saved on whom God does not force salvation, though the language would not be exact. It is not true that the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, which is the free gift of God, is merely put at our option, and our wills are free to accept or reject it. Our wills are free enough, but they are hopelessly biased to its rejection, and will certainly reject it so long as it is only an offer. But it is not true that God's free gift of eternal life to his people is only an offer. It is a gift, and what God gives, he does not merely place at our disposal to be accepted or rejected, as we may chance to choose, but gives, makes ours, as he gave life to Lazarus and wholeness to the man with the withered hand. It was not in the power of Lazarus to reject, it was not in his power to accept, the gift of life which Christ gave him, nor is it in the power of dead souls to reject life or to accept it, when God gives it to them. The God in whom we trust is a God who quickens the dead and commands the things that are not as though they were. 
It would be impossible that so extreme a doctrine of the autocracy of the human will as Mr. Trumbull holds should not affect his doctrine of perfection. It does affect it, modifying and limiting it in more ways than one. It is doubtless to his doctrine of the will that it is ultimately to be traced, for example, that perfection is conceived by him as limited to deliverance from the commission of known sins. This conception is rooted in the externalizing view of sin, which finds it in the stream of acts rather than in the agent himself, and homologates the definition of sin, which confines it to the deliberate violation of known law. It is a conception of perfection quite out of gear with Mr. Trumbull's mystical notion of the Christ within us and its consequent quietism. If Christ has indeed taken over our living for us and become himself the principle of our actions, the formula that we are delivered from the commission of known sins loses all meaning. Known to whom? To us, who are no longer the agents in our activities? Or to Christ, who has taken all the responsibility for our activities? Surely there are no sins which Christ does not know to be sins, or are we to suppose that Christ carefully adjusts himself to the government of our lives to the measure of the knowledge of sin which we possessed, each of us, before he took us over, and will not work through us on a higher plane than that? That Mr. Trumbull nevertheless in expounding his doctrine of perfection clings to this formula, freedom from the whole power of every known sin, freedom from all our desires for every known sin at once, it is the privilege of every Christian to live every day of his life without breaking the laws of God in known sin, either in thought, word, or deed. Our victory is as complete now in relation to every known sin as it ever can be. It meets all our needs and breaks the whole power of our sin. It can be accounted for only by the strength of the hold which his Pelagianizing doctrine of the will has on him. His Pelagianizing doctrine of the will is the primary element in his thought, and everything else must be adjusted to it even his doctrine of perfection. It is no doubt from the same source also that the influences flow which prevent him from teaching a stable perfection. On his doctrine of the Christ within us, he ought to teach a stable perfection, and he makes use of expressions here and there which seem to imply that the perfection which Christ's indwelling in us brings us must last. The essence of his teaching here, in fact, is that when we by faith entrust our lives to Christ, he undertakes for us, that after that condition is fulfilled, we are to be passive, to struggle and fight no more, to leave it to Christ, and he will do the rest. He has taught us indeed that it is Christ's responsibility to bring me into and keep me in victory after I have surrendered to him absolutely. But this is not the most fundamental line of his teaching. That compels him to say, yet we have the responsibility too, and that is but a weak expression of his real meaning. Not only is our reception of the victorious life conditioned on an act of our will, performed in the power of our own free will, but our retention of it after it has been received is conditioned on acts of our own, ever-repeated acts of faith, performed in our own free will. Thus, after all, struggle, not quiescence, becomes the mark of the Christian, though the struggle is not to refrain from sinning, but to maintain, or rather continually to renew, the faith on which everything hangs. For Christ gives us but a moment-by-moment -moment keeping, conditioned on a moment-by-moment -moment faith on our part. Mr. Trumbull cannot call to his aid here, as he attempts to do, a true saying of Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman's, which he quotes, to the effect that the great thing is not how much I love God, but how much God loves me, or the true exhortation of Francis Ridley Havergal, already mentioned to the effect that we are to entrust to him our trust. 
These remarks come out of a quite different fundamental attitude from his own, a fundamental attitude which suspends our salvation utterly on God, and therefore rests wholly on his love for us, and expects faith itself only from his hands. Mr. Trumbull, on the contrary, suspends our salvation on our own will. There is where free will comes in, and demands action of our own free determination as the condition precedent of all God's benefits. Christ never accomplishes spiritual results except through the person's will. Christ does not give a spiritual blessing to a person apart from that one's will. What he actually teaches, therefore, is, just as John Wesley taught, an intrinsically fallible perfection, a perfection out of which it is possible for us to fall, out of which, in point of fact, we may fall any minute, if we should not even say every minute but we can equally readily get it back at once by merely claiming the promise again, and then go on in him just as if it had never happened. For your failure did not weaken Jesus Christ. He is just as strong after the worst failure of your life as he was before. Alas, that we cannot forget that he was not strong enough before to keep us from falling, despite his own assurance that he is, Jude 24. And alas, that, having had experience of his failure, we can no more confidently entrust ourselves to him. What Mr. Trumbull really means to say is that we should turn always from our past, from our failure or victory, to himself, moment by moment looking to him. That, at all events, is good advice. But Mr. Trumbull adds, strangely enough in this context, that we will find that he is permanent, always able, and always faithful. Is he, on Mr. Trumbull's teaching, able and faithful to keep us from falling? No, what Mr. Trumbull teaches is that we always have the power in our own free will to fall, and always have the power in the same free will to return. It all depends on our free will and not on his keeping. The condition of our salvation is a continually repeated or maintained will on our part to be saved, and the actual doctrine taught is that our life of holiness, such holiness as consists in freedom from the commission of known sin, depends on this continually repeated or maintained will, a moment-by-moment faith exercised in our own strength. It is not of grace, but of will that we are saved. It is not of God that shows mercy, but of him that runs. If there is nothing else, there is free will, which can always separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, Mr. Trumbull cries out in horror that it is not Christ that has failed, it is our trust in Christ that has failed, that the only thing that can get us out of victory when we have surrendered to Christ is to cease to trust him wholly. But that only shows that our dependence must be in our trust, not in Christ. Christ cannot keep us in trust, but our trust can keep us in Christ. Our trust can fail, and Christ cannot or will not prevent it. Our only recourse is to renew it ourselves. That, fortunately, we are told we can do. We can fall out of our trust apparently very easily, but happily, when that happens, we can get it back again just as easily. Life is a web, woven by the shuttle, plying in and out, as it does in other webs. The understrand is sin, the upper perfection, and so we weave it day by day. No one, of course, is having the victorious life while he is being defeated, but he may have had it just before, and he may have it just after his defeat. The victorious life is always a matter of the present moment. It is always only a moment-by-moment -moment victory, depending on a moment-by-moment -moment faith. No one can take victory for a season. We can have it continuously, but then that is only if, if we have faith continuously.
and whether we have faith continuously, that is up to us. This is as express a Pelagianism as Pelagius's own. It is not the same Pelagianism as Pelagius's own, it substitutes faith for Pelagius's works, and it draws on God for all saving operations. These things give it a certain specious appearance of evangelicalism, and it is doubtless in this specious appearance of evangelicalism that the appeal of the system lies for devout men. But they do not the less make it pure Pelagianism. The antithesis to the Pelagian works is not faith, but grace, and grace is a thing that cannot be commanded by the fulfilment of conditions, ex verbi it is gratuitous. It is a poorer Pelagianism than Pelagius's own to substitute faith for works as a condition securing God's favour, especially if the favour of God which is secured brings with it cessation of moral endeavour on our part. That merely betrays the little regard we have for righteousness, and it may even be but to open the door to antinomianism. And it is something far worse than Pelagianism, something the affinities of which are with magic rather than religion, which supposes that the activities of God can be commanded by acts of men, even if these acts be acts of faith. It is the essence of magic, as distinguished from religion, that it places supernatural powers at the disposal of men for working effects of their own choosing. It cannot be overlooked that the whole tendency of the teaching of Mr. Trumbull and his coterie is to place God at the disposal of man, and to encourage man to use him in order to obtain results which he cannot obtain for himself. This is, of course, to stand things on their head, and in doing so to degrade God into merely the instrument which man employs to secure his objects. The whole representation of the relations of man and God, which is given us by Mr. Trumbull and his associates, is to the effect that God is released for action at man's option. So much stress is laid on the freedom of man that no freedom is left for God at all. The analogy of a material force is most unpleasantly suggested. We happily have not met in Mr. Trumbull's expositions with such an express development of this analogy as is given, for example, in Dr. A. T. Pearson, who, in his little book on the Keswick Movement, speaks constantly of God as a reservoir of grace on which we draw, and even permits to himself such an objectionable phrase as holy ghost power, which, we are informed, is at our disposal. But the fundamental conception is the same. God stands always helplessly by until man calls him into action by opening a channel into which his energies may flow. It sounds dreadfully like turning on the steam or the electricity. This representation is employed not only with reference to the great matters of salvation and sanctification in which God's operations are secured or released by our faith, but also with reference to every blessing bestowed by him. We are not only constantly exhorted to claim blessings, but the enjoyment of these blessings is with wearying iteration suspended on our claiming them. It is expressly declared that God cannot bless us in any way until we open the way for his action by an act of our own will. Everywhere and always the initiative belongs to man. Everywhere and always God's action is suspended upon man's will. We wish to make no concealment of the distress with which this mode of representation afflicts us. When Erasmus even distantly approached it, and spoke of securing the grace of God by some little thing retained to human powers, Luther told him flatly that he was out-Pelagianizing Pelagius. Man does not secure the grace of God, the grace of God secures the activities of man, in every sphere and in every detail of these activities. 
It is nothing less than degrading to God to suppose him thus subject to the control of man and unable to move except as man permits him to do so, or to produce any effects except as he is turned into the channels of their working at man's option. We shall not, however, dwell on this matter at length, although it is the most fundamental and most objectionable element in Mr. Trumbull's teaching. We have now run through the constitutive elements of Mr. Trumbull's system of teaching, for it is very distinctly a system of teaching. This system of teaching is not new in the sense that it breaks out an entirely new path. It is, as Mr. Trumbull himself very properly apprehends it, essentially a continuation of the teaching of Mr. and Mrs. Pearsall Smith as prolonged in the Keswick movement. In this sense, it is merely the latest form in which the general system of teaching represented a half-century ago by Mr. and Mrs. Smith has been presented to us. This latest form is not the best form of this system. Mr. Trumbull's mode of conceiving and presenting this general system of teaching shows a tendency not only to throw up into emphasis, but to push to extremes the elements in it which are least tenable. We do not say that Mr. Trumbull has injected these untenable elements into this system of teaching. That would imply that they were not present in it until it came into his hands. They have, on the contrary, been present in it from the beginning. That, its origin in the teaching of Mr. and Mrs. Pearsall Smith secured for it. But Mr. Trumbull has brought them out, and given them new point and new sharpness of statement, or, perhaps we should better say, new boldness. Above all, he has definitely placed the system on an openly Pelagian basis. Not, again, as if expressed Pelagian conceptions have not always lain at the basis of the system, but he has given this Pelagianism complete dominance in the system, and that in a particularly objectionable form of statement. Perhaps we may sum it all up in one word by saying that in Mr. Trumbull's hands this objectionable system of teaching has run fairly to seed. End of The Victorious Life, Part 3, by B.B. Warfield.